Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design. We're glad that you joined us today on this beautiful Saturday in Central Florida. And we're actually going to bring on to the phone with us in a few minutes uh, Dr. Charles Thaxton, the father, you might say, of this whole movement in science, the intelligent design movement that we feature almost every week. And so we're going to really be excited to have an incredible conversation with this uh, brain. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't describe him as a brain, but that many people <laughs> know him as a, just a great guy and a, and a, and a scholar and a, a wonderful uh, Christian thinker. And I just want to thank Bill Carl, my producer, my technical producer, but uh, he does more than the technical side. He's my student, my uh, you might, I'm mentoring you a bit, Bill. Thank you oh. for making this this program possible. Glad to be here and excited to uh, hear from Dr. Thaxton today. You've mentioned him so many times, and, and as we've had different guests on, the conversation has always been, we've got to talk to Dr. Thaxton. <laughs> well, we're building up to the almost the climactic interview of our uh, tenure of a year and a half that we've been featuring Darwin or Design. We're bringing to you each week cutting-edge information, news, and analysis, in, per, in per, pertaining especially to this very important cultural issue. Do we come from random, mindless forces? Do we come just from the universe in action that kind of just uh, brought out as a kind of a roll of the dice uh, something? as complex of a li- as a living cell, uh, or especially the pinnacle of creation, is the, hu- the human uh, species. Uh, Homo sapiens, wise man, as they were called by the ancients. Uh, or, you know, the, 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 the debate that's developing over this question, were we designed or were we not? Is design real or is it apparent? Is there any scientific evidence for design or is it just a religious notion? That is the approach that we're bringing each week. And, of course, we branch out into other areas of apologetics dealing with the questions, has the designer uh, made himself known in a decisive way in the history of the world? So we're excited to uh, be able to feature this uh, topic each week and to kind of branch out into related areas. And we want to thank the C.S. Lewis Society, which has been presenting for 20 years on the Trinity College campus, the case for Christianity, the reasons, the evidence that really stack up and support the act of faith that uh, Christians take. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's a step in the light of, of evidence. Of, but of course, it is faith. It is trust. We cannot prove mathematically that, uh, for example, that God exists. We cannot prove photographically that Jesus was raised from the dead because we don't have video footage, but we do have eyewitness testimony to support that uh, truth claim. So, without further ado, let me just welcome to our uh, program for the first time the author of The Mystery of Life's Origin, the book that really, in a, in a very serious way, launched the concept of intelligent design back in the mid-80s, author also of the book Soul of Science. Uh, welcome, Dr. Charles Thaxton. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm very happy to be with you today. Yeah, and you're up in your uh, home and office there in uh, Marietta, Georgia? No, not Marietta. Peachtree City, right? Peachtree City, Georgia, yes. Okay, just south of Atlanta. It's been my privilege to be uh, with you. 
in your home, which doubles as an uh, academic uh, te- teaching center. Tell us a little bit about Konos, if you could, your organization. Well, Konos um, is a Konos Connection, actually, mm-hmm. is, um, is a, um, well, how would I describe it? We're a school, but it was basically uh, a school that was in Prague, Czech Republic before it was here. Um, we started a school, English-speaking school, when I was teaching at Charles University in Prague, and uh, my wife was the head of the school. When we came back to the States in 96, 97, uh, and we, we started one here as well. And it started out just to help a few uh, homeschooling families with their, with their children. Uh, and it one step led to another, and now we have a two-day program each week for these students. And um, it was started years ago by a curriculum that my wife started that many families have used over the years called the Konos Curriculum. Hmm. And, um, and that was where the name came from. Uh, was when we use it for that. And really where the name itself came from was even further back than that, when I was a graduate student at Harvard and um, was talking with a student one day, and he was trying to describe on the board that he he had a a, a religious life as, love, as well as a financial life and a sports life and a dating life, and he drew a circle on the board and divided it up in the typical slices of a pie and and said, oh, yes, you see, in this religious slice, I give God his due. I took the chalk from him and put a dot up above and connected the dot to the two sides of the, of the circle. And I said, well, that's not what I mean by a Christian worldview at all. And I'm not that circle, but that I put God up there at the top and, and uh, drew the two lines down and made a cone out of it and said that if God is there at all, he might have something to say about all those slices, not just that one. Mm. And uh, that's where the name came from. When we wanted the name for our school some years later, I said, well, why don't we just use that name we used up in, up in Cambridge, Mass., and uh, call it Konos, which is a Greek-sounding name, <laughs> Kona for, for Cone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, that's a great idea. And we incorporated it, and that's the way it's been ever since. Well, it's through uh, Konos Connection that uh, people can actually access, I believe, uh, some of the resources, and we're going to get to those in just a minute. But let me just say that I love the illustration of the pie sections and the little dot floating above, which, of course, then is connected to the pie to become the cone. And so I, th- I think that's a terrific uh, illustration of the primacy of not only God, but the communication from God that really gives us wisdom to live a balanced and a flourishing life. So let me jump back into the mid-80s to kind of really scope out the birth phase of intelligent design. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing at that time in, let's say, 1983-84 in writing this bombshell, this early um, critique of chemical evolution that really launched the design program, the design inference? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, in, in, really, back in, in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, I was a graduate student and um, planning a career in teaching chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, an article was thrown across my desk one day, uh, which became uh, a life-changing influence in a way, because the article was by a man named Michael Polanyi, the famous article about life transcending chemistry and physics, and um, physics and chemistry. And it was his assessment, 
using uh, of, from, of his approach to science of the whole DNA revolution, as it was known at the, in, the, in the late 60s. The genetic code had just recently been discovered, and uh, Francis Crick, who was a co-discoverer of the double helical structure of DNA, had written a book in which he had proclaimed that uh, uh, now that we know what DNA is, we know what life is. And essentially, it was the information that was in DNA. And so Michael Polanyi in that article basically said, well, not so fast. If you know what DNA is, then you know that it cannot be accounted for by chemistry and physics because the code itself cannot be reduced to that. And I was fascinated, read it, reread it, reread it, and as I did, it dawned on me that this was something I needed to focus on. So in the 70s, I did that. In the 80s, I did that. the 90s, I did that. Here it is, the 2000s, and I'm still doing it. <laughs> in other words, rethinking how life transcends or goes beyond physics and chemistry. In other words, the, that, chemical, the chemical laws that govern how ink adheres to the paper and how ink behaves and how the paper behaves, those physical laws will never explain the message, uh, let's say, um, you know, DNA has a designer. Okay, that's a message written on a on a piece of paper that has, let's say, twenty letters. I, I haven't, you know, stopped to figure it out. But let's say, you know, a, a book or a newspaper that the arrangement of the letters. I think you're what you're saying is uh, the you have to go beyond the physics and chemical laws to understand where the arrangement of the letters came from. That is correct, and uh, that's not just uh, a recent thing. In my studies, I ran across. Uh, Many things, and of course, it was written by the, the same principle was even enunciated by the, uh, by the um, uh, Stoic writers way back in um, 46 BC. Really, that's amazing. Well, let's just jump into the the chase scene in the mid to late 80s. You began to work with a group of like-minded skeptics of Darwin's theory. Uh, which, uh, if I remember correctly, was called the Ad Hoc Origins Committee or something like that. Tell us about what that committee did and how your early papers on DNA contributed to this kind of new revolutionary line of thinking. Well, our first book, The Mystery of Life's Origin, was published in 1984. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, my wife and I moved to California. And uh, what you call the Ad Hoc Committee... Uh, was really just a, a group of us who were in Southern California and a couple who came down from Seattle, and we met at the Disneyland Hotel one day and um, and had a discussion about origins and what could be done in terms of bring to light the what we thought at the time was a pretty revolutionary idea that um, Polanyi had introduced to us, and we began to develop, and then we incorporated into the mystery of life's origin, this notion that, that there is empirical evidence that intelligent, uh, intelligent cause did something, not just an idea, but uh, actually physical evidence you can touch that was the result of an, an intelligence. And we knew that it was, um, uh, it was not normally thought of this way in science, but we also realized that with the dawning of the genetic code just being so recently at hand, and uh, that we were in a whole new area, and um, it, took, it was going to take time to figure it out and understand it. And so that's why we were at that meeting, in, in the ad hoc meeting, and we put together a, a, a conference, and it turned out to be um, a, a pretty major conference that we had in Tacoma uh, in 1988. And this was known as the Tacoma Conference, 
Um, and it was entitled, what was the title of it? Sources of Information Content and DNA or something like that's that? That's correct. Okay. And um, the, the purpose of that conference was just to uh, air this notion that intelligent cause um, accounted for the message sequences we gotcha. see in DNA and therefore in proteins and living things. Right. Well, let's hold that thought. I'm going to have to kind of bring this uh, segment to a conclusion. You're listening to Darwin or Design. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. You're listening to an exciting account of the, really the launch of the intelligent design movement by one of the founders, one of the initiators and geniuses, if I can go ahead and and speak my heart and mind here, uh, one of the guys who thought out carefully the ideas that were coming from this genetic revolution, the discovery of DNA, the discovery of informational molecules wound up inside the nucleus of living cells. And, of course, Charles Thaxton, along with Walter Bradley and Roger Olson, came out with a really an, an A-bomb book in 1984 called The Mystery of Life's Origin, which uh, was a heavy-duty critique of the chemical soup theory of life. Uh, it, it is still in print. I think I, I'm, I'm managing to capture one of the remaining copies uh, from the, the print run that is available. And uh, we have on uh, the line with us Charles Thaxton from his home uh, near Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Charles, if you could just go back into that moment when the Tacoma Conference was bringing in front of a number of scholars gathered there, including Michael Denton himself, uh, I believe uh, flew in from Australia. Tell us a little bit about the outflow from that conference on DNA, the source of the information content in DNA there in June of 88. Well, at first when we had the, when we had the conference, um, I was uh, reticent at first, um, ang- anxious is a mild word to put it, Mm-hmm. Um, trying to assess whether or not we had a sufficient basis to go forward with our second book, which was of pandas and people. Uh, that became a lightning rod book in itself, but before that book was written, we wanted to test the central idea that there is a legitimate scientific basis for intelligent cause for the DNA structure. And so that was really, in my mind, when we drew the conference together for the, um, the Tacoma Conference. And after we had the conference and everyone gave their paper, I think there were about eight or eight or nine people who actually presented papers at the conference, including Michael Nitton, as you said. And then we had the free flow of discussion, and, and uh, for three days we did this. At the end of which, um, it seemed that the notion of intelligent cause had held up pretty well in that conference. And um, we went on then and had the courage to give another lecture, and I think it was about a month and a half after that that I gave the speech or the presentation uh, at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And you recall that one. Well, I was uh, unfortunately able to set that up uh, at the Woodrow Wilson School on the Princeton University campus. That's correct, and that was, the, uh, that was another test run. That was the, the, an opportunity to actually present the material that we had, the bottom line of which was... Uh, the intelligent design argument part of it that I gave at the Princeton meeting, uh, and that went well. We had a good discussion from that, 
and the feedback from that, and eventually, about less than a year later, we actually published the book of Pandas and People. And so all the other uh, events have flowed from that. And of course, the, the book of Pandas and People became rather historic in a rather uh, unfortunate way, I guess you could say, in the Dover trial, because the, the later edition was really the focus of the Dover, uh, Pennsylvania trial, which was, to me, a travesty. It was an intrusion of the federal court to try to, you know, define what science is, and, and that was no part of the expertise of Judge Jones in you that know, trial. Tom, and throughout the history of science, critique has always been a major part of science. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, science advances through criticism of its theories, but... Uh, what we had was um, trying to have court protection of theories through legal mandates, hmm. and that's not the way to do science. Yeah, when the, when the when the law gets involved in declaring what is and is not science, you know, hold on to your um, pocketbook or hold on to your mental book, we might say, in that case. The, that, uh, but that court case did something else. What did it do? It, it put a false idea out there in the minds of millions of people. It said. Uh, in their court case, that science is limited to the search for natural causes for natural phenomena. Hmm. And that's a false definition of, of, of science because uh, science has never been so restricted to natural causes. There's only one state in the Union out of 50 that has a naturalistic definition of science, and that's Massachusetts. Hmm. And all the rest leave the question open. They're going all the way back to Aristotle or Francis Bacon and all the years since. Science is a search for causes without the specific designation of natural causes. And they did that deliberately because science has always had the reputation that it's rather philosophical neutral, philosophically neutral, and so the search for causes. And, but this is a, this is, as I mentioned, a new day dawning with the molecular biological revolution, the DNA. First time in history we have a molecule that looks like and has the evidence of, uh, of intelligence producing it. And so now the courts are trying to come in the back door, change the definition of science, and say, no, no, it's natural cause only. And, uh, and that was a real travesty, as you said. Well, what do they do? What, is, what do the scientists do when you bring up the fact that search for extraterrestrial intelligence, like sifting radio transmissions from stars and galaxies, itself looked for a code? And if they discovered a code, they would assign, uh, ding, 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 they would assign an intelligent cause to that code. So that's an example, isn't it, where science is using means to detect intelligence? Well, uh, yes, of course, but they would go on and say, well, that's okay because it's within the universe. Oh, <laughs> and, and even uh, even arson for buildings. They say, well, that's okay too. So we'll have another exception. You can have arson because that's intelligence setting a, de- de- a fire, de- detecting that it was not a natural uh, explosion, but it was arson. It was intelligently guided. That's right. Yeah, okay. and as long as as long as we can limit things mm. on the intelligence side to either man or inside the universe, it's okay. Mm. But well, is that not itself a philosophical judgment? Well, wasn't one of the, your your main planks of developing the the core theory of intelligent design that you can detect an intelligent cause but that doesn't immediately tell you you know the scope or nature or exact identity of that intelligence that is correct uh, and the idea for this really goes back to my reading of of uh, the old uh, uh, religious skeptic uh, David Hume wow. many years ago who wanted to point out that um, uh, he was he was opposed to the supernatural as many of the uh, skeptics today are, mm-hmm. but he did say that science itself proceeds through analysis of the effects or the the result of a cause, 
and that this, if this methodology can detect either a natural or an intelligent cause. So when I read that, I said, oh, well, my goodness, this fits pretty well with what I'm trying to do. And so I instituted the notion of a generic cause. And we cannot uh, determine the identity of the cause just by knowing that it's either natural or intelligent. You walk along a beach and you see uh, ripples in the sand, you know that some natural process did it because it fits the pattern of your experience. Right. Likewise, you find John loves Mary written in the sand. You know that, uh, you know that, that uh, uh, this was not done by a combination of waves or some creature caller out of the sea and doing it. You know that there was some intelligence that did this. And this is the pattern that tells us that intelligence did it. That's not bringing in religion. And likewise, when you see the same kind of structural pattern in the cells of every living thing, and you conclude that intelligence did this, that's not religion either. But when you have a contrived definition of science that says you can only look for and find natural processes, then when you find that signal from space, well, if you're consistent, you must conclude that it was set by natural processes rather than some intelligence. So you're right when you mention the extraterrestrial signals. Uh, they, don't, they don't follow their own pattern with that. And uh, if we did, we would keep it open, either natural or intelligent causes, on the basis of, of, what, of what the pattern is and the effects that we see. Right. It's Let keeping me, with the old pattern, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I love that. That's, that's one of the best mottos that we can have in the ID movement. And I think the ID movement has championed following the evidence where it leads. Let me just mention, if you're just joining us, we're having a f- terrific conversation with a scholar, a chemist, Ph.D. graduate uh, from, I believe, is it Iowa State University? Yes. Okay. And did a postdoc at Brandeis, the uh, very elite school in Massachusetts, did a postdoc in the history of science at Harvard University, lectured with Francis Schaeffer at the famous uh, study center Labrie in Switzerland for, I think, about a year or so in the late 60s, early 70s. So we're listening to uh, having a conversation with Charles Thaxton. If you want to know how it's spelled, it's T-H-A-X-T-O-N. If you want to Google that name, you'll find lots of hits there, a lot of laudatory things, probably the anti-intelligent design, probably have a lot of nasty things that they're saying about you, which just makes it all the more interesting and exciting. Uh, Dr. Thaxton, tell us again, if you could, just real quickly, how does the present, in your view, act as a key to the past? This idea of what, you know, the present, what we see going on in the present really is a key to the past and how that supports intelligent design. We got about a minute and a half. Well, if you found a document that said that you were to receive a million dollars and it was written by your grandfather and you found it in the attic, would you trust it? And um, you can on the basis of using evidence wherever it leads. It fits the pattern of your experience. It, it was like the vocabulary of your grandfather. It was in his hand. And so you take it and you conclude that, yes, you're, worth, you're the person that was talking about. Um, the same thing in, in, in our situation. We find evidence, whatever type, and we put it together and we draw an inference from it. If it shows that a natural process did it, then we appeal to that. If it shows that an intelligence did it, then we say that, without having to have the restraints on, on us one way or the other. Okay. As to the name or, or the identity, we have to pursue that. We don't know we, until we do further tests, and even then we won't know until they tell us. 
Right. Well, let me just mention, as we're sliding out of this uh, segment and getting ready for an exciting segment three, uh, I'm actually teaching a course at Southeastern Seminary up in Wake Forest, uh, Mass- excuse me, uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, over the next two weeks called Darwin or Design, Darwin or Intelligent Design. And I'm using as one of my three textbooks a book written by Charles Thaxton called The Soul of Science. It is a fantastic book, which gives an overview of the entire history of science and shows how three powerful ideas really shaped this incredible unfolding story of science. We'll be coming back in just a few minutes uh, for a quick conversation with Charles Thaxon on that book and some other really exciting uh, updates in the relationship of Darwin and design. You're listening to a program by that same name, Darwin or Design. We uh, would love to have you join us every week on Saturday afternoon. We'll be back in just a moment. Darwin or Design airs through the sponsorship of the C.S. Lewis Society. You can give your support when you log on today to apologetics.org. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We hope that you're making it a regular uh, tradition or habit to listen and tune in each Saturday afternoon between 5 and 6 as we explore this exciting frontal um, area between the faith issues and science issues and particularly trying to focus on the question of is there evidence for the designed universe, the idea of a designed universe? Is there evidence that humanity and all of life really has the fingerprints of a divine architect? Uh, and of course, we're talking to this uh, this afternoon. We're talking to Charles Thaxton. Charles Thaxton is a graduate of uh, the University, uh, excuse me, uh, Iowa State University, with PhD in physical chemistry, and he is actually also, um, a, you might say, an alumnus of Harvard and Brandeis. He did a postdoc at those two universities, and he's written several books that are relevant to intelligent design theory. One of which actually was the spark. You might say it was the A bomb book that launched the design notion or design intelligent design paradigm back in the mid-80s, The Mystery of Life's Origin. The next book uh, written by Dr. Thaxon, which I've read and loved and I've used in several courses, I'm using it in a course taught up at Southeastern Seminary these next two weeks at Wake Forest in North Carolina, is The Soul of Science. Uh, Charles, tell us a little bit bit about how that book came about and how you co-authored it with Nancy Piercy. Well, uh um... I've been teaching the subject of uh, this book, uh, The Origin of, of Science, for many years, um, and actually was um, at Labrie, but I mentioned that I was at Labrie earlier, and I met Nancy Piercy there. Of course, she was uh, uh, Nancy Randolph at that stage. She was not married, still in high school, and um, that's where I first met her, and years later, after our book was the Origin of Life book was printed. She did an interview of me for a magazine she was writing, and we renewed the, our acquaintance, and then it became a real deep friendship over the years. And then um, while I was teaching at Charles University in Prague, she called one day and said that um, she was in the process of doing a book, and would I like to join her as a co-author, and we collaborated in putting together The Soul of Science. So I was very happy to do that. And um, so... 
Well, and, uh, and, where and, do you want to go with this? <laughs> yeah, well, in the beginning of the Soul of Science, in the incredibly powerful opening chapter, I mean, all the chapters are powerful. The one or two on mathematics, um, I'm actually going to let my class skip, uh, the, the, I think, one of the two chapters on mathematics. But the, the ones on physics and chemistry and the quantum revolution and, um, you know, the biological, you know, information in biology, that chapter is, is unbelievably powerful. The whole book is just a, a, for me, it's one of the most powerful books on the whole issue of what is science and how did science come to be what it is today. And what well, I think that is uh, precisely what got me all into this years ago. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by uh, the personalities that helped to produce science. And initially, uh, I wanted to know about the lives of the people who actually did the experiments. Where did they get their ideas from? That was what motivated me. Mm-hmm. And then years later, as, um, as I, I had the chance, I took it and I went to Harvard to study history of science there. And I went, and they have a special, uh, have to have a special key to get into this one area that has the, uh, the inner sanctum books, I guess, for history of science. Mm-hmm. And I ran across some, some um, materials there that were just eye-opening to me, things that were not normally available to people. And in the process of which... Um, I began an idea to, to pursue it more and more. The idea that the Christian influence upon science was not negative, but it was extremely positive and acted like fertilizer and fertile ground on which it can grow. And so I developed those ideas over the years, and a lot of that is in the opening chapters of the, of the uh, Soul of Science book as well. And... Um, but this notion that Christianity is a friend of science, I think that book will show you is borne out to be true. Because the evidence points out that the really the kickstart, the impetus, the flowering of science grew out of the soil of Christian thoughts, Christian assumptions. That's correct. Yeah. Well, and of course, we know that even uh, Whitehead, I believe the scholar at Harvard, had, um, had developed that new line of thinking uh, very powerfully earlier on the uh, first half of the 20th century. But let me just go back in to this issue of the current controversy. Uh, because in Soul of Science, you just barely get into the, in the notion of DNA as a pointer, pointer toward intelligent design, and you talk about the implications and, and how that inference works. What do you say to people when they come up and say, well, intelligent design is not a science. It's just based on religion. It's just based on theology. How do you respond to people who come up and say that? Well, I ask them what they mean by science, <laughs> because, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Today, it's awfully easy for people to have a confused notion of what science is, especially when, um, um, in a sense, there there is an effort afoot to try to change the meaning of it in order to get around the fact that if you apply the normal approaches to science, and uh, you especially when you looked at the new features that we see on a regular basis looking inside the cell, that the obvious implication would be, my goodness, this is designed. But we don't have a language in the normal sciences to deal with design unless you go back and you look at it historically because the first 200 years of science's history was built within the framework of everything is design. Mm. Well, we're we're having a fantastic conversation with Charles Thaxton, who is uh, considered by many, including myself, as the father of the intelligent design movement through the writings, through the scientific work that he did uh, with Bradley and Olson in writing the book, The Mystery of Life's Origin, an incredible, powerful critique of the chemical evolution theory of life. 
And that actually was, uh, you know, published by Philosophical Library, which has also published the works of a number of other no- of uh, many Nobel laureate uh, authors. And, of course, uh, also the author of The Soul of Science, which we've been discussing as a great introduction to the history and really philosophical shaping of science through the last six, five or six centuries. Uh, Charles Thaxton, tell us a little bit about what you would say if someone says that the origin of life theory is really making good, good progress today. We're almost at the edge of the complete picture of how life or how the first cell evolved. Well, I first of all, would uh, point them in the direction of, uh, of reading what some of the major scholars in the area are actually saying about it. Okay. The, the people who actually do the work are recognizing that it's a much more difficult project than they ever dreamed it would be back when they started it. Hmm. Back in those days is when you saw the optimism. Today, the only, trip, only people who are optimists are, are people who, um, uh, who are perennially opposite, uh, uh, optimistic regardless of the evidence, because the evidence is not looking very good okay. in terms of a naturalistic theory. Uh, more and more uh, of, the, of the people who are doing work in the field are saying things like, we're at the end of a paradigm, uh, it's run its course, we're looking we for have, a new paradigm, new ideas, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, what, what do you what do you do when people say, well, you know, we, we know at least how the monomers, how the single building blocks, could be uh, produced in a swirling gaseous apparatus, that Frankenstein, you know, Miller apparatus, which takes the four gases and and zaps them with electrical discharges. If people say, well, well at least we know how we can get the building blocks, what would you say to that? Well, I would say um, not really, because uh, if you use a more realistic atmosphere, you don't get the building blocks. Because, because in other words, the early Earth had some free oxygen, or, or at least didn't have a lot of the reducing atmosphere that they have in those experiments. There is no evidence of a reducing atmosphere on the early Earth. Wow. And that is a major, major uh, blow the theory. Have they found evidence of the prebiotic soup in geological study of rocks? Uh, none whatsoever. Wow. How about the, the minimal threshold for a, a functioning cell? How many genes do they expect you, you would need to have an up and running, you know, duplicate, you know, a, a cell that's processing energy and it's also able to duplicate itself? Uh, well, I've seen all kinds of estimates and expectations. No one really knows for sure, but uh, um, uh, certainly um, uh, 30 to 40 units would be would be a minimum, mm-hmm. and um, that's doubtful that anything like that would be realistic. Doesn't the uh, actual the ribosome machine that actually translates from the RNA to the protein, doesn't that require about 53 or so proteins? That's, I've read that recently. Well, yes, but I'm, I'm talking about the... Uh, uh, I'm talking about the information to, to produce it. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, of course. But, the, but to produce it in the first place uh, without the uh, information code, uh, that is the, that's the major problem. It doesn't matter if you're talking about um, RNA or DNA, either one of them. Um, um, there's no realistic possibility that you can identify for a soup process to, to produce it. That's why more and more people are looking to comets and activities outer space and maybe a comet dumped all the materials here uh, or maybe there's some new area within the deep sea that will um, have possibilities of, of sequencing these things in a way that we don't even know how it's done so it's the hope that what we're going to find tomorrow rather than basis of what we know today mm. that drives this thing anymore well, one of the things that I say in my lectures on the origin of life is even to get a simple protein 
just just a you know the basic let's say a hundred units of amino acids these hundred building blocks strung together like on a, a spaghetti string or something uh, you have to have amino acids but the amino acids have to be all the left-handed kind and these experiments correct me if I'm wrong these experiments uh, the that produce the building blocks produce uh, roughly a 50-50 mixture of right-handed and left-handed amino acids. So the well, quite- that, that's correct, and that is a major barrier to the whole thing. You even include one wrong-handed uh, amino acid, and you break up the structure. It won't function. So without intelligence around, how could you filter out just left-handed and say, shoo, 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 to the right-handed amino acids? Well, that is the problem. Wow. And I and it's what what I find astounding is that when you go into the public... Uh, textbooks, public high school or even college textbooks, and and you ask or you look in the section on origin of life, these problems like a, you know you put a, easily list a dozen of these huge problem problems that have arisen from the evidence are not listed, and I'm going to come back and ask that question when we uh, go to segment four here with uh, Dr. Charles Thaxton, and that is why is there such a systematic um, kind of erasing or at least sequestering locking in a closet all the negative or all the hostile evidence uh, that really should be presented to students right there in the classroom you're listening to darwin or design we'll be right back thanks for joining us darwin or design airs through the sponsorship of the c.s lewis society you can learn more about the c.s lewis society and lend your support too when you log on today to apologetics.org Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We're enjoying a fabulous discussion over the phone with Charles Thaxton. Charles Thaxton is the author of several key books that really helped to launch and shape the design movement, the Intelligent Design Research Program. Uh, the first book came out in the mid-'80s called The Mystery of Life's Origin. It's a critique of the chemical pre- prebiotic soup theory of the origin of life. It actually received kudos from some of the leading researchers in that field. I know that um, the, the uh, myth of the prebiotic soup chapter, I think it's chapter I don't know, four or thereabouts, received high praise from even the, some of the most staunch and famous researchers in the field. And of course, he also is the author of a book that I'll be using as a textbook in my class these next two weeks up at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, The Soul of Science. Dr. Thaxton, thanks for joining us for this program. And tell us a little bit about how people could order The Soul of Science if they wanted to get a copy. Well, if they uh, go to the Conos Connection uh, website, conos.org. And that's K O N O S? K O N O S dot O R G. Mm hmm. Uh, they should be able to find um, uh, there the, the mentioning of the, um, mostly what's on that page initially is, is a material about my wife's uh, writing uh, curriculum. Mm-hmm. But if you keep looking, you'll find uh, materials about, uh, about uh, the books that I've written. And the story that you told of your path, your professional career, and, and your life story that was so fascinating, I show it to my science class each year, a chemist story, is that still available? Yes, it is. Okay, a VHS probably. 
Yes. Okay. And that's available on the website at konos.org. It's a terrific, terrific interview. Actually filmed on the Trinity College campus in the mid-90s. And uh, and by the way, by the way, uh, last uh, week as we were together at that Intelligent Design Conference up in Bonaire, Georgia, I, I noticed that you look as just as youthful as you did in the uh, mid-90s um, uh, the mid '90s, you know, interview that we have published with you guys. So, I, my, my congratulations. Whatever you're uh, <laughs> eating and drinking, I want to know because it's like the fountain of youth uh, effect. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, Dr. Charles Thaxton is a one of the scholars who has hammered out the the broad outlines and the and the basic thinking structure of how you can detect intelligent design. Now, let's jump in for a moment to the addition uh, to or building on your foundation. Uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer at the Discovery Institute, a graduate of Cambridge University, really worked closely with you and also with William Dembski to really home in on a phenomenon that DNA and RNA and proteins have, these molecular structures that carry information. And that uh, phenomenon is called specified complexity. Yeah. And, I, and I think that you uh, are really much, pretty much in the thick of that theory, that development of the theory of specified complexity. Could you give us a kind of a quick thumbnail sketch of what is specified complexity and how does it point to an intelligent cause? Uh, well, I used, I used three different uh, um, letter sequences Okay. As a way to help illustrate this, uh, the, the point very easily, one is a, a, a random sequence. Just draw letters out of a hat, mm-hmm. and you can uh, put them down. And, and uh, in, in, in the sequence, you draw them out, and that will be a random uh, sequence of letters that communicates no information or very little. Uh, likewise, draw them out and, and spell out a message, or put A B A B A B A B. That is an uh, the A, B, A, B, A, B set of letter sequences is an example of order. Okay. But the letter sequences that you draw out at random, that's an example of a, uh, of, of a um, complex structure. Mm-hmm. But when you find a, a set of sequences that you draw out of that hat and you lay down and it looks random, and then you find out that if you subtract one letter from it, each one and it spells out a message like John loves Mary, then you know that, in fact, well, there's a code here that makes that sequence. Of course, if you drew it out at random, you wouldn't, you wouldn't likely produce that message. Right. But if you found the letter sequences, and they looked random, and then you found out that they were related by this withdraw or subtract one, um, one letter from each position, and, you, and it then spells out a message, then you would know that you're dealing with a code. And the point is, where you find in a code, you find intelligence. And that's true in our world, that's true in the world of a cell. And that's really the bottom line message of all this, um, is that um, we are seeing more and more evidence that the, um, that the cell life, is the uh, cell sequences you, you see, are like letter sequences or binary zeros and ones in a, in a code, a computer code. So the let's say the DNA contained in a typical animal or plant nucleus would really be just as much computer code as the Microsoft files on the hard drive of my laptop. Words, they're, 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 they're equivalent in terms of binary code quality. Yes, that's correct. Um, what you find in, in, in a computer is a series of zeros and ones, and um, they look just like zeros and ones, but when you... Uh, connect it with ASCII code, they will print out on your computer uh, whatever you type. There's a message. 
Hmm. That's what we're finding inside the cell with the DNA. You find sequences that look random in terms of the genetic letters all look random, but they're related by the genetic code to spell out how to put the specific amino acids together to make a protein, a real functioning protein. So in that sense, there is a mathematical identity of structure between what you see in a written language and what you see in the genetic, co- genetic, genetic messages. And, uh, and that's a real, a real uh, new understanding of things uh, that's come about in the last 25 or 30 years. And would you uh, see that the current state of research, in other words, uh, recent research on the ability of random mutation uh, filtered by natural selection, but of course the key is random mutation, to build up such a quantity of precise code, that theory is not in good shape now. Well, it never was in good shape uh, in terms of dealing with the evidence. Mm. Um, dropping random uh, marbles at random on a keyboard is a very poor way uh, to get a message. And that's what we have, in, in effect, in random mutation. Well, that's what, that's what mutations are, is mm. uh, basically uh, uh, random mistakes that you make inside the genetic message. I, I want to just kind of really emphasize what you just said. You just said... It's not just in trouble now, the theory of random mutation, writing dense quantities of computer code on our DNA. The theory has always been in trouble with the evidence. And that's, well, well, in that's, terms of the evidence. In terms of the evidence, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's always been, like, philosophically, it's appealing to people who want a naturalistic, kind of like nature did it all kind of life uh, philosophy or worldview. Uh, let me just mention, I was on the phone recently with Murray Eden, who I th- you know needs no introduction to you. I think he was an in- influence on both of our thinking. Murray Eden is an agnostic, MIT uh, emeritus professor at MIT uh, Electrical Engineering. Actually, his his wife uh, knew th- he and his wife knew Einstein personally when he uh, was a student. Uh, I think he did a postdoc at Princeton in the early fifties. But Murray Eden told me, he said, I said, you know, something like, so you, you view the mutation selection process as still in great, in, in great trouble. And he says, oh, yeah, it's I've always said this is Murray Eden's words. Uh, and it's not coming from a religious critic. It's coming from a guy who is a self-reclaimed agnostic. He's Jewish, you know, racially, culturally, but he's agnostic. And he said, I've always maintained that the mutation selection is an incredibly sloppy idea with very little precision to it. And I think what we're seeing now is that the evidence from what we're learning about what mutations can and cannot do, now we have like the, the empirical backup to the intuition that we've had all along. Well, as long as you're, trying, as long as you're thinking uh, in terms of uh, simple things, like rent, dropping of marbles on a type keyboard can spell out cat and dog and you know, three-letter words and occasionally a four-letter word. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about orders of uh, Shakespearean sonnets and uh, and much more. Or encyclopedias. Uh, that have to be put together. Yeah. Well, I want to just say a huge thank you from us at the C.S. Lewis Society here at WTBN Radio for the service that you have performed in really triggering, helping to shape and trigger a cultural and scientific revolution in the making. So our hats are off to you, Charles Thaxton. Well, thank you, Tom. Well, it's been great to talk today to uh, none other than the father, or some people may say grandfather. He handed the baton, uh, you might say, to, to uh, Philip Johnson in the early 90s, but continued to labor very mightily there in Prague, Czech Republic, in shaping the intelligent design uh, research program, Charles Thaxton, author of The Mystery of Life's Origin and The Soul of Science. We'll have to, uh, Bill, we'll have to have Charles Thaxton on again uh, for a follow-up report. Don't you agree? 
Excellent. That'd be a great... I think we could do three or four shows with yeah, Dr. Thaxton. I think we just scratched the surface. And of course, Dr. Thaxton himself would say, I, I know he's had, he had to sign off to go back to do some academic uh, teaching work there in his home in uh, Peachtree City, Georgia, where he works with his wife, Carol, in the Conos, Conos I get the pronunciation right, uh, connection, uh, a- academic work they do with uh, homeschoolers especially. Uh, people going off to some of the elite universities in our land are being trained there in the in the Konos connection. But as he had to sign off, and it occurred to me that you know he would not hesitate for a moment as a scholar who is you know unabashedly a Christian thinker, in addition to being a ter- terrific uh, chemist and pioneer in this analysis of the chemical soup theory of the origin of life. He would not for a moment uh, hesitate to ask the question: Once you determine that life has an intelligent cause behind it. I mean, that much can be determined, we believe, scientifically, empirically. You can draw a good, solid inference. I don't think Charles Thaxton would hesitate to uh, allow the question to be brought up maybe over at the Starbucks lounge, you know, once you leave the the chemistry lab. Uh, The question would be, who? Who is the designer? Has the designer made himself known? And, of course, as uh, a Christian uh, thinking a group of people here at the Darwiner Design Program, we believe that the designer uh, has revealed himself in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in ways that are quite remarkable. And let me just mention a couple ways that I think that as you bring up the inference, there is a designer, then the logical uh, series of steps go like this. If there is a designer, it's likely he would make himself known. Okay, in other words, if humanity has this tremendous power of rational thinking, rational reflection, scientific discovery, and, and so forth, it was likely he would make himself known. Th- next, once you, you recognize that the designer would make himself known, you have to ask, how would he make himself known in a decisive way, in a communication mode? And that's where we come into the question, is the Bible credible historical material that relates to the program of God revealing himself through the Messiah. And of course, you know, many, many people who've studied, you know, this issue, has God made himself known? C.S. Lewis himself, when he wrote the book Mere Christianity, he based it on a series of broadcasts where he was dealing with the skeptical public in in London, or in, in Britain, I should say, during World War II, who were shaken to the core by the almost threat to their existence through the Nazi Germany attacking them and bombing their cities. And the, and the questions that C.S. Lewis raised is, are there, is there good lines of thinking, good lines of evidence that can confirm that there is a creator and that he's made himself known? And, of course, Lewis says, yes, you can know from the moral law. God has revealed himself. The creator has revealed himself through the moral law, which whispers in our hearts, there is a right, there is a wrong, there is a good, there is a bad. There is moral excellence and there is moral evil and even moral abomination. And we know it. We know it down deep. And we know that we're on the wrong side of that equation. In other words, we are not sinless. Everyone, everyone has stumbled. Everyone has done rebellious, stupid, and even wicked things. And then thirdly, you know, once you, you, you recognize that he would, the creator would reveal himself and that there's a way to look for a communication you know, in historical communication terms, in the Judeo-Christian possibility, then you look at the claims of Christ. And that's where Lewis argued that when Christ said, I am the way, you know, I am the one who can forgive your sins. He forgave the man who was let down through the roof before he healed him, the paralytic that was let down in the home there in, um, in Luke chapter 5. He healed the man, but before that he forgave him. 
And, they, and there was a big row for your funeral. How can you forgive? You're not God. And Jesus said, so that you can know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You know, take up your pallet and walk. And he did. So we believe that the you know, creator, Christ, has made himself known in a powerful, historic, decisive way through the eyewitnesses that, that interacted with him. Thank you for joining us on Darwin or Design. We'll see you next week for another exciting conversation and exploration of the topic of Darwin or Design. 